Hi, I'm your host, Thomas, data scientist, data engineer, and you're listening Let's Talk AI. On this podcast, we receive experts to talk about their experience, visions, challenges, with no fear to go into technical details. If you're looking to learn more about AI and related subjects, you're at the right place to make yourself comfortable and enjoy. If you like this episode, please give us a review on your favorite streaming platform, such as Spotify or Apple Podcast. You can also find more content on my LinkedIn newsletter. Welcome everyone this new episode of Let's Talk AI. Super happy to be here with Suzanne Chu Cheng. Suzanne, how are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, happy to be here. So quick reminder, everyone who is listening, Let's Talk AI, we're talking data, we're talking AI. If you're a data professional and you want to take your career to the next level, if you want to have a 360 vision of the field and understand the latest technologies, have tips from expert people, this is what we do here. And today we're with Suzanne. Um, so Suzanne, maybe for the people who might not know you, uh, can you share a, a brief introduction of yourself? It can be personal and professional. Yeah, yeah, of course. So my name is Suzanne and I uh, work at Elastic. So we make Elasticsearch, which is pretty commonly used on tech stacks all around the world. Um, I'm a principal data scientist there. Uh, previously, I was a principal data scientist in a fintech a company. And before that, I've worked also in telecom. So quite a lot of industries. Uh, in my free time, I like to do game development, play video games, and I'm also writing a book on machine learning interviews. So also uh, some some things there too. That's awesome. A book that will be published, um, is that will be published by O'Reilly. Uh, yes. I have many questions to ask, not necessarily only about uh, interview question, but I think it can be very interesting. Uh, I think I would like to ask you, you mentioned that you have different patients and, and you've ha- you, you have a very impressive career. Uh, what are you trying to achieve today, either as a, principal da- as a principal scientist, but also in general, like what is your vision? I think it's fun for me to keep learning. So I think that's one interesting thing that attracts me to machine learning and data science, which is the field is growing very fast all the time. And I really think that Um, it really satisfies my curiosity. For example, recently at work, I was working on generative AI, and that's new. Um, And before, I was working on various new fields in machine learning. So that always makes me not not feel a a bit of boredom, I guess, if I was to do the same thing over and over again every day. Hmm. I can see. Um, I think what I would like to ask you about uh, starting this episode uh, now that we know you uh, a little bit better, would be uh, make kind of a retrospective of like since you graduated uh, and uh, through your careers, like key moments, so that we can grasp the idea of uh, what you've been doing and also what's your expertise. And I'm pretty sure that we'll be able to get a tons of uh, tips and practical tips for anyone who is listening, listening to your career and then follow up questions on my part. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I think if we were to start from a bit more of the beginning, because I think one key moment is entering the field. And um, I actually had a background in economics. So one key thing I think was uh, learning how to interview for data science and how to respond to questions um, that are related to my education. So for example, 
um, building projects at school that use Python and machine learning. So then I could use that in my interviews. Um, I think that's like one key thing that I accomplished, which was self-learning Python because that wasn't part of uh, school. So <laughs> that's like the early thing. And then um, one early uh, interesting thing was working on a recommender system when I was working in the telecommunications company, there were millions, like many millions of users. So I think that was like an early way of making impact, which actually in retrospect, I'm very grateful for because um, there was a lot of good mentorship provided at the company. So I think that really helped me build up my career and take on that responsibility mm -hmm. uh, early in my career rather than later, because I think it takes it takes a lot of trust um, to be to do something like that earlier in my career. So I think those are some pretty um, proud moments I've had um, early on. I'm happy to go on, but it could be. <laughs> I He's, could, gone. Uh... He's gone. OK, um, I think one interesting thing I did in my previous company was because it's uh, I had much more responsibility, even more responsibility there. I think that's the trend, which is I kept growing in responsibility um, because it was a, a smaller team in a startup, a fast growing startup at the time. Um, so I was pretty, it was very fast paced. Like mm -hmm. we want to make a change, then I could directly change it. Uh, if we want to build something, we'll directly build it like very quickly. But in a bigger company, there is more people and need more approval, longer mm -hmm. planning. Um, but I actually feel that even though the team was smaller, I had so much um, responsibility there that that was really very, uh, very good learning experience. I think we would say well, my coworkers and the people in the company would say that one year here is like three years somewhere else. Hmm. So I think being able to um, learn from such an environment and deliver things in such an environment was a really big, uh, big a milestone for me too in my career like being able to uh be in big companies and also like smaller companies be in more slower environments and also fast environments i think that really expanded my professional like capabilities and like my understanding of like applied machine learning in a very different way hmm. awesome awesome and you're now working at Elasticsearch. Um, we'll be able to discuss Gen AI uh, recommendation systems uh, and Elasticsearch, uh, the company itself. Uh, just quickly before that, uh, regarding your education, you mentioned that you're self-taught Python, that you started Python on your own. You also mentioned that you really like uh, building video games on side projects. But um, my question is, how did you get into tech where your studies related or uh, then I think it could be very interesting also for you to, to discuss and this could be a very good introduction to, to the book that you're writing um, but how do you start interviewing for these kind of jobs uh, so first to summarize um, how did you get into like the technical aspects of things Python etc and second uh, how did you get to apply and what are the criteria for someone to apply in roles like data scientists and so on? Yeah, for sure. I think the way I learned the fastest um, is learning by doing. So I made sure to 
even though I started with basic tutorials, I always made sure to quickly, as soon as possible, apply them myself as well. So not just reading or like, you know, reading and watching videos, but then watching like the fifth video and watching the 10th video doesn't make too much of a difference anymore. Or like taking the first Coursera course to taking the fifth Coursera course doesn't really like there is some benefit, but then after that, there is no more benefit unless someone, unless I made my own thing. So I think mm -hmm. that's what helped me really quickly build up a very, uh, a relevant portfolio. So I would say that the projects that I did were helpful to bridge that gap between, okay, like this is someone maybe not from a statistics major or a CS major or a data science major these days. When I was at school, there was no data science major, but now there's a lot. Now there's a lot of them. Um, so uh, being from a less related uh, major at the time, uh, I do actually see economics being listed much more these days too on the required. So I would say that, you know, it's, it's still a bit relevant, but um, one thing is, yeah, just trying to get to hands-on, building a good portfolio that was able to get interviews. And mm -hmm. also I had um, good referrals because I went out of my way to talk to people. So I, my program had a academic advisor I asked her, hey, do you know any alumni that work in data science? I'm interested to go into data science. She gave me two or three um, names. I, I DM'd them on LinkedIn. I was able to get on the phone with um, one or two of them. One of them never responded, but uh, you know, it's like, that's how it goes, right? You have to make the, I had to make the effort to um, do that. And uh, I also had a good friend who was in the same program a few years before me. And then he also referred me. So I think going out of my way to uh, talk to people, reach out, make use of those resources. Um, I also mentioned that in the book too, how this has helped me and how people might not realize the extent of the resources that are available to help them. Hmm. Awesome. Speaking about the book, uh, maybe it's a good opportunity to discuss uh, interviews. So this is one thing that you mentioned in the book, but for everyone who is listening, um, what, uh, what are the intentions? Like, why did you start writing this book? And what do you intend to share with people by publishing it? Yeah, so after, uh, so coming from, let's say less of a traditional background and also um, working in the field for a while now, I noticed a few trends. I think one is that the interview process is still very mysterious and also difficult. Every company has such different machine learning interviews. I've interviewed with a company, they only asked me coding questions, Python questions, and they didn't ask any uh, data questions. And I've been through interviews where they mostly ask kind of a technical deep dive or kind of system design machine learning related questions. I've been through ones where they ask like half and half, you know, they all are very different. And I wanted a place to just put down somewhere every, everything, almost everything, not everything, because then the book would be too big. Um, about all these hidden signals, hidden expectations about the interview process that I had to learn many, many years. So for example, one example of hidden criteria is 
um, when doing coding interviews or doing, let's say it's a take-home coding interview. Basically, it's expected that the candidate writes down some tests, right? Like Python, like you write some like unit tests or things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know that until very, I had done a few interviews and my friend had done that and wrote tests and it was good. And also when I was interviewing um, people, my manager was like, oh, like, let's, we have to look if they have tests. And I think there are such things that really help, but it's not mentioned anywhere. I don't see it anywhere. Online, it's mostly, you can find the sample questions. You can find the question bank online, right? But it's like everything else. Behavioral interviews, um, I didn't know I had to prepare for that uh, early on. I didn't know um, that different companies ask different things. I thought I was preparing well, and then I got asked something totally different. Uh, I didn't know how to talk to recruiters when I first started out. I, so uh, just to summarize, there's over the years, I've learned so many things. Um, I wanted to put it all together in one book to help not only people who are first starting out and don't know, or the things I learned from mentors that I wouldn't have learned online um, that are like the question banks I can look up myself, but everything, everything else. Um, there's just so much about like how what the interviewer is thinking because now I've interviewed a lot of people too. Um, I know what to expect. I know mm-hmm. why we are asking this question. Right. Um, and yeah, one even more surprising to me is people who have been in the field for many years mm-hmm. when they go back to interview, they're always surprised like, oh wow, I didn't know they asked this. So I wanted the book to also be a place for not only newcomers, but even when I had been in the field for one or two years, I didn't know all of this either. When I went back to interview for the, another job, I was like, wow, like they're asking this. <laughs> so I wanted to include all of that as well. Awesome. Now, now people will be looking out for this book. <laughs> I'm sure that plenty of people will be uh, waiting for it to be published. Um, For example, when you do uh, interviews at your current company, um, with all this expertise that you have and that you're building up uh, into this book, uh, can you share with us maybe some of the key aspects towards data science and machine learning that you're looking for into into someone and, and how maybe can people approach this framework of preparing themselves into interviewing? Yeah, for sure. I'll share some key points um, here. One thing candidates like over sometimes overlook is really the communication aspect. So um, the interviewers like we we are, you know, we are very well versed in ML, but we might not actually be well versed in the same field that the interviewer is coming from. So, for example, Um, let's say someone is very skilled in computer vision and their projects are in computer vision. They start interviewing and they just start talking about all these terms and me and my interviewer, uh, my fellow interviewers, maybe we come from fields like NLP or recommender systems. And, you know, we have to spend some time clarifying what they are talking about. Um, So (laughs) it wastes time and it makes the interviewers confused Um, of course, like we'll ask, but then that also just spends some more time if the explanation is even more complex, right? So that has actually happened before. And I think that's uh, what, so 
in, in summary, we're looking for someone who can clearly convey highly technical concepts. So one interview question I had as a, in the past, both as an interviewee and the interviewer was, um, so let's like, I'm talking about, uh, let's say collaborative filtering or whatever, like tree-based models in my interviewer, in my interview that the interviewer, as an interviewer, I'll say, can you explain this? Like I'm five years old, explain this to a five years old and see how they respond to that. Cause how, <laughs> if they, there's some candidates in response to this question, they still keep saying a bunch of acronyms and like a bunch of math and things like that. And then it's kind of hard because we, in my job, from beginning to now, all the time, I have to communicate with people that are not just machine learning experts. I have to communicate to software engineers, data engineers, product managers, directors, product directors, and things like that, right? I have to, for me and for the candidates we're looking for, we need people to ideally be able to do that or be trained to be able to do that. But mm -hmm. if they don't have the mindset to do that, then they won't they won't do it. Um, so uh, that's one thing we're looking for. They can work in a team and communicate. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, the technical bar is always going to be there. We All these candidates, if we're already filtering them on this kind of communication, that means they're good enough technically. So let's just assume that's out of the way. Um, because there's a lot of candidates who are very technically, they're technically sound. And I think that's, um, you know, that's there's a lot of candidates who are, of course, like they have, um built projects ideally we're looking for someone who's built it who's understanding the end-to-end -end project mm -hmm. so they're not just training the model alone like right um, by themselves like it's it's best if they know like how to communicate or uh, even better if they worked with someone else like a data engineer even better if they work with also product managers like it's hard to say this for entry level right but like let's say they did some school projects and they work with other people that's good enough if they can communicate like how they dealt with that situation um so that's something we look for like can they not only contribute technically but can they actually get things done in a team because that's one important thing Mm. Um, so yeah, I know it's like less on the technical side, but I find that finding people who are technically, uh, they clear the bar is less, it's hard still. I, I mean, to be honest, there's lots of people who don't clear the bar, but out of people who clear the bar, we are still quite looking for people who have done like more end to end projects and can right. communicate and work in a team. Right. Makes sense. Thanks for sharing those uh, points. Uh, I was wh while you are sharing, uh, I feel like those are two very important things, and I feel like uh, we don't hear them enough. And I feel like maybe we hear those examples, but we, um, I mean, it's like you said, like you watch the first course of Coursera or Udemy or whatever platform, and it won't make a difference if you watch the fifth or the seventh, because then you need to practice. And so this is my statement please correct me if you see it differently but i believe that uh going in interviews is like going to the gym and that i can be great in my job and be very good technical but not be prepared technically for interviews specifically or like specific knowledge skills that i don't use on a daily basis I as a, let's say, data scientist, but I need to review all those concepts to be able to explain them clearly, even though I'm not using them on a daily basis. Uh, 
what what do you say re regarding that is that a correct statement would you add anything yeah i definitely definitely agree with that because one example for me is that like i don't do hypothesis testing that often in my day-to-day -day job but every time i go through some interview loop i have to review it again because they maybe they won't ask it all the time but i think i've gotten a lot of questions about hypothesis testing so i i would say i have to review that or i have to go back um, maybe there are some projects i did a while ago and if someone suddenly asked me something on my resume maybe i forgot <laughs> some details i need to go and look at my notes or look at my like past um like my notes or my more detailed resume to remember and then prepare so each time like i think it's more um it's like I believe that this person is smart, they understand these things, but it's kind of like school, right? If sometimes right. you do a midterm, uh, you do final exams and you scored very high and then two years later, maybe you forgot the content, right? You need to right. definitely review it. So I, I definitely agree with that. All right, all right. Um, uh, so that's that's very interesting. I think I think I'll have more question for you on the on the on the interview aspect, but I would like to ask you about uh, what you said at the beginning. Your passion, your passion for video games, um, as a gamer and as a game creator. So, if I'm not mistaken, you've also built a company around uh, like building a video game. Uh, can you tell us more about this experience and how it impacted your life, your career, and, and everything that it might have impacted? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I would say that like because I started um, learning how to program was really because I wanted to make games. So it has in indirectly or directly kicked off my entire career um, in software and in machine learning as well. Um, so I think that's one lovely thing about it, which is um, just doing things without really expecting a return because I didn't know that this was going to be so amazing and I think mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of fun with it I think it's about like you know following a curiosity and then uh, diving deep into like you know technical concepts that one is curious about mm -hmm. um, I so I guess like I built a game and then I started building a second game and then I realized that I could um, start uh delegating some more things because i think over after the second game i was feeling a bit more like each time i make a game i want to delegate a bit more because there are some parts that i wasn't really learning much more if i did the same thing again and again so it's better to just hire someone to do it and i can work more on the um like creative parts the designing part um and of course like i think the programming of the game is actually very creative also but because i have done that so much like i have done that for so so long that mm -hmm. um i was just like i need to delegate this and actually that's helped me in my career um getting promoted and things like that because part of the promotion to senior and beyond is actually like scaling up what they call like um it's not just about my own code output but rather like other people's how i impact other people's code output so there was a book i read early in my career called the effective engineer mm -hmm. um by i think edmund lau all right um yeah i will kind of look that up i'm pretty sure that's the name but i mentioned this concept called like 
leverage for developers and this always this all translates to machine learning as well which is as a principal level or staff level a person like how how do i make sure like someone junior on my team grows to be like a senior level or someone junior level how do they grow how does someone senior level also grow how do i help them grow because mm-hmm. this means like the any team that i am in will eventually 2x or 3x their maturity mm-hmm. right so this is what what we call like developer leverage or mentorship um, or whatever and even and that requires delegation because i can't be everywhere at once and actually right. i piloted that with the video game um basically i learned all of that already during the interview oh uh, sorry not the interview the studio mm-hmm. um This also ties in a little bit with what I really has helped me throughout my career, which is creating my experience almost, which is like, okay, I want to grow to the next level. I just happen to do this with my game, my like side projects. I I also like just learned this, like learn programming through the games. And then now I'm able to do this at work as well. Um, It just happened to be like a pretty, pretty nice um, create my own experience type situation, but for other people, right? Like they, they have things like, I mean, you have to do podcasting and some people have their other hobbies, right? You can, people can definitely do that in their other hobbies as well. It doesn't have to be a programming related because I think video games is like a lot of it was programming, but a lot of it was actually more like managing. Cause I don't do art, um, artwork. So I had to um, hire and manage like artists right so mm-hmm. then it's like that is something I learned also that didn't impact my career that much when I was uh, more junior because I mean no one's reporting to me or no one's like being mentored by me when I'm a junior mm-hmm. uh, but like actually like just a, a year or two later that became so beneficial uh, just, just without expecting that so you know people's right. experiences you know some people lead meetups or volunteer at conferences like uh mm-hmm. all that can help oh you mentioned volunteer at conferences all right i have one first little question before i have many other but okay. this is a very fast one uh and it is definitely related to video games my question to you is did you ever went into your video game codes to solve a problem at work oh Actually, no, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it's, it's because the code use is pretty different. All the libraries and stuff are like quite uh, different. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, I've, ne- but... I've never developed uh, video games, but uh, but I would assume I thought maybe like if you had uh, trained a model for like how things act, maybe this model, but maybe it's uh, different. I don't know. You you can. Well, that's a second question that I had. Also, um, you, you talk about software and data science. Uh, and so how would you, like how, what are the main differences between a data scientist and a software engineer? And like, do you feel that one combines another and would you feel that you're also a software engineer as you've been developing games and and so on? Um, so can you share maybe some insights about that and about how the models are implemented in games if they are? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so I think in okay, I'm just trying to trying to formulate <laughs> this this answer. So I think it's important for people going into machine learning to be good at machine learning or like the things I'm doing requires a lot of like theoretical 
knowledge as well that I use like all the time because if I don't know that then if I just treat them like a black box I don't understand how it works like underneath then it's hard for me to troubleshoot anything right so it's kind of like people who write code without understanding it this this analogy works for both machine learning and software which is if you're just writing code and you don't know about when you're debugging it it's hard to debug it's it's easier to debug issues when you understand what's going on really understand what's going on and in machine learning this is really important because sometimes um, if the model is very bad debugging it is going to be very important right because so for example people building fraud models mm -hmm. if it's just like such a bad model they don't know how to debug it let's mm -hmm. say they start suddenly start getting a lot of people who are able to successfully bypass and that could lose their company you know millions of dollars right so um, that means that if they don't understand how to debug these new issues when they come up, they're reacting all the time, right? Like there's always new things coming up. And in, when in my work in security and, uh, well, in Elastic, it's like there's always new ways that people can, that we'll find that is like we need to use machine learning to detect this or that. They're always different. So if I don't understand the underlying theory, I can't react to all these new situations. Um, so I think, of course, like the machine learning, you know, underlying principles are very important. Um, but why has I have grown more in like software maturity as I um, built the games and also did more stuff at work? I think for someone, you know, it's just entering the field, they don't have to have both. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to eventually be more end to end. So then it's easier to, um, I think for me, because I'm more end to end, I was more flexible with what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. So then that meant that I could take on more responsibility. People mm -hmm. trust me with more responsibility because they know that I understand more pieces of the puzzle. Because I think there is that like pretty famous, uh, there's like this diagram where it's like, I think, um, like it's like a small box that's like machine learning algorithm and then other pieces of like or like model deployment like yeah. data pipeline like yeah yeah development deployment and things like that so it's kind of like the more you you broader know about the entire system and, and that includes software engineering or ml ops ml operations and model deployment not just like this model like right yeah so that's that's how i see it right yeah, I always, I always think, uh, I always think that uh, data scientists should grasp and try to dive into the, the um, data engineer skills or software engineer skills because it is so fundamental. And and if I don't have the ability to understand the data flow and how everything is moving, how can I make sure that what I'm building is meaningful because I have no overview of data and I have no overview of lineage and I, uh, and so on. So yeah, uh, makes sense. Uh, also correct me if I, uh, if I say something that you would uh, add something or correct. Um, but um, this is, uh, all right, understood, listen, checked. Uh, following on the next question and something that you just mentioned, it's about public speaking about speaking at events and so on. You've been doing that for some time. 
it have helped you a lot in your career. Can you maybe share on on that specific skills that you've developed, uh, and maybe share with people how to start or how to to grow in those skills? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Ooh, I don't even know how I first. Oh, okay, I remember now. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm just just thinking. So, I would say public speaking has helped me a lot in my career. Also, with um, uh, I started pretty early on. Okay. Uh, I was participating in like a journal club, so it's like a journal discussion, uh, machine learning paper discussion. So it was like more like technical talks. It's a group called the Aggregate Intellect, and I used to co-organize it. And we had in-person events, and now we're uh, they've transitioned to uh, online, kind of more like discussion um, based. I'm no longer, um, I guess, co-organizing it, but then. I still am involved because a lot of those people are my friends, um, professional friends now. Um, so I did that when I first started out and it was more like technical talk. So very like deep dive and things like that. Like I did a talk on, uh, it was like using reinforcement learning in recommender systems written by someone uh, working at uh, Google and how they implemented this to test out the YouTube recommender algorithm. So it was like, diving deep into like the math behind that and things like that so i think like once my coworker saw i did i did that talk i think they trusted me more or something like that but i also at work i there was um we had those internal talks i think like i forgot what they're called but just like occasionally during like lunch hour we would have like knowledge sharing and like someone would like um, do an overview on some algorithm or what use case they found at some other company or even the things we're working on, right? So I also participated in a lot of those talks. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the around the end of the time when I worked at that company, um, we also had some AI conferences like internally and it was pretty big budget on that. And like, I think there's hundreds of attendees and out of the people who were there, speaking i was i was i think the person with the least work experience tenure at the company um, but i was able to speak at such a large internal venue um, Mm. because of that Um, and i also practiced a lot i i actually asked um there was one talk early on i did like i did 10 dry runs (laughs) i did 10 dry runs and i did it to people also i as in like i i did the dry run not alone to myself but i like shared a condensed version with other people asked and asked for their feedback on what i can add um to it and i asked my manager like how uh, i could improve so one feedback um what well one thing i learned is that people might not depends on the culture right like sometimes Mm -hmm. like they might not give the more critical feedback initially Mm -hmm. um so then i have to like ask them like again for example, I think there was one talk where I was able to get a useful feedback, which is that like maybe is a very long talk. It's like an hour long. So then my energy level started to decrease <laughs> at the end of the talk. So then once uh, my my uh, colleague, my, my manager mentioned that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's so useful. But I had to proactively ask mm-hmm. about it so that I could improve on it. So then I think that's one thing that helped. And actually, like I would say that right now I've, be, I, I'm invited to do keynotes and things like that. And I can't even do all of them. There is like um, a keynote this year that I couldn't 
make it because it's mm-hmm. like abroad <laughs> and I think the the costs were covered and all that but it just didn't work for my schedule this year but um, I didn't know that this was going to happen when I started speaking internally and when I started kind of speaking at more and more places um, so I encourage people to just like it's useful too right because when I work in machine learning I have to one things that I built influence is be able to talk to product managers mm-hmm. and project managers uh, in a way that they can understand. So then they would actually come to me if they're confused. And then when I had a suggestion, then they would like they would like uh, already listen um, more carefully, like not not always, but just like relatively it helps. Right. Um, so I think that was like the small immediate benefit, but the long-term benefit has been more than I expected completely. But mm-hmm. for people that I recommend how to get started is like through local small events, um, or, you know, like at your company, there are some events or things like that, just like free, just like, just talk at one or two places for free, do some practice. Um, there is many ways to, you know, volunteer and do smaller talks. I started very small, right? Just internal, internal audience, right. um, or like local. I guess there's also big audiences too, but just like started with a smaller group and low stakes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then I think pe- often people get more intimidated because it's like more they what they see is that like oh like Susan's doing like keynote, right? Hundreds of people listening. Um, but what is not seen is that like oh started with like some internal like five people <laughs> five people talk not recorded or anything just like make some slides and like go right so it's like all these like little things like you know go from five people to like uh, internal event to like a public uh, ten people event and you know go on and on right, right. So, yeah right it's like a constant journey of. Uh self-learning improvements. Uh, I had one question while you were explaining, for example, when you mentioned that you explained some concepts uh, and the mathematics behind. Um, So we are in this field of data and AI submerged with technologies. There are people very good at using those technologies. Um, And in the machine learning space, there are so much libraries that makes it so easy to just load the model, fit it and go with it. So I think my first question to you would be, if I ha- if I were to start practicing my skills of explaining what I do, how would you approach um, like the topic that I should talk about? I would assume that this is personal, but the topic that I should talk about in a way that... Um, I can also like deepen my skills and how I explain them, but also increase them and learn new things because I want to explain this. So, yeah, that's a big like. Do you have any tips or where would you start? Ooh, I think maybe there's definitely a few angles for that because I think one, uh, it's not always it has to be like more technical or more deep and I think for people starting out it's totally fine to not understand like deep underneath like what's going on there's libraries I use every day I don't actually know (laughs) what happens (laughs) underneath unless I spend the time to do it but I think it's like finding one or two things that you are really interested in Mm -hmm. or like maybe your main project at work it's good to use that 
as an opportunity to like mm-hmm. learn more about it and it, right. for like the less important things like you don't have to <laughs> people don't have to spend time i don't spend time on like learning all the so in depth about all the side things i do but i think for the main main project i'm responsible for it's good to know more details right. um just like me personally because sometimes mm-hmm. you can still get the things done without knowing it but then it'll help with the next project or the next next project right mm-hmm. so um, def- just I think it's worth it to spend some time at some point to do some more technical stuff, uh, technical understanding at some point. But it's not the starting point. It's not like, oh, first you understand everything and then you build the project. Not that doesn't always work out. Just like build and see if you have time. Um, but I did make that a priority at the time um, because I was like mostly like responsible for um, for for something. So I was like, I, I should really build that up, uh, build up that skill, but it's not necessary. Um, but yeah, as for the talk preparation, I think it's good to, um, I, I think like it's good to come up with some interesting topics, but it's actually easier than what people think, because I think what I was saying, uh, when I was trying to do talks like more ex- externally, I, I think I initially was like, oh, I wonder if the things I'm talking about is interesting enough. Mm-hmm. or people's talks are so cool like how how are they doing that but then i realized really quickly like even if some of the things are repeated so recommender system talks i was seeing so many of them at the time but like i would learn new things from each different industry for example like oh they mm-hmm. did they did recommender systems in like um like let's say netflix or they did it in like a banking industry or like they right. did it in this other industry and there's like new things that I didn't hear about. So like whatever you're doing in your industry might actually not, it, it would be new to mm-hmm. someone else. Right. Um, or I would listen to some NLP talks and then it would be like, oh, the way they use NLP here, like, okay, the talk overlaps a little bit with this other talk, but it's like, there's some new stuff to me because I don't work in NLP and I don't work in that field or any combination or like I didn't use it at this scale or I didn't use it with the um like in like an internal tool or I didn't use it like for external facing tool or Mm -hmm. whatever so it's like there's there's definitely something new and I think people who are kind of like looking to speak can just like maybe like take a look at those um so for example when I'm applying to a conference um submitting for a conference i might look at the past years like list of topics that they had mm-hmm. those talks mm-hmm. they had in the last year and see if there's anything um that stands out to me right you look at conferences you look at the subjects people are discussing you might have your own sources of way to learn do you have anything to share like as of how you learn did you read papers for example that some sometimes new papers do you have some some references uh or or directions as of where people can look into to learn things yeah for sure i highly recommend uh i guess for um some fields like my friend eugene yan he works at amazon and he writes it's like eugeneyan.com he has very deep dives and he will he has a curated um paper list so Mm -hmm. he has like oh this is like uh useful papers related to you know reinforcement learning useful papers related to time series or things like Mm. that so i started with those Um, Or I recommend people to also start with those, just whatever interests people, like you don't have to 
check mark and go through everything because I didn't either. So just like just do what's interesting. It's more fun and like <laughs> it's more fun if it's something it's in a topic that's more interesting. I, I would say start with that. I also sometimes look. Um, so for example, learning about like generative AI, I do have um, my friend Suhas who writes. Uh, he's actually writing an O'Reilly book um, mm -hmm. and. He's mentioned some new things, but I think even if you don't personally know someone who's like oh, an expert, expert, I do see a lot of these new um, related things on um, LinkedIn. So then if it's interesting, I'll look at it. Or for example, like when I was still first learning, I think that was when um, Google DeepMind, I think now they're called something else like Google Brain or Google AI, <laughs> I forgot, but uh, we can add that. But um, they would release stuff like, oh, um, reinforcement learning to play like Go or like, you know, even before that it was like chess mm -hmm. or like these new things. And then they would attach like the paper that's associated with that. So they would have like a blog post that's more like simple to understand. And I would read mm -hmm. that. And then I would like read um, like the detailed paper to see what I can understand. So mm -hmm. that's one thing, because it was a topic I was interested to. It's kind of like machine learning and related to like games, right? Like not necessarily like video games, because they actually did have a StarCraft um, bot. I think it was called Alpha Star. Yeah. And so like that was, you know, I also read that paper because it was interesting. But like even mm -hmm. before that, they had like, you know, other other types of things. So it's like the mm -hmm. topic that I'm interested in. That's awesome. Yeah, and I feel like this is super important. Like following curiosity, this is something that will be that will give the the consistency of doing this because uh, uh, then it is uh, it might be harder. Um, so so I have before we we reach to uh, to the end of this um, uh, episode uh, and thanks again for uh, for for sharing everything. I want to talk a bit about Elasticsearch. So. Um, what is your experience with Elasticsearch? And maybe can you share um, a project that really inspired you? Uh, I think that could be very interesting. Yeah, for sure. So um, at Elastic, we um, I, I would say that it started as an open source um, project. And now like some of the things have changed a little. But the thing is, Elasticsearch is a very commonly used, um, I guess, I'd say, tool in many, many different tech stacks. And we also, I guess, the way it makes money is kind of like Red Hat and like some Linux distributions is that, okay, there's like free versions of most things, um, free functionality for a lot of things, but then there's also these like paid um, support. So for example, consulting um, that enterprises can pay for and they can get support, um, customized support or consultants or things like that. That's not what I do, but just like that's what they can get. They can get support um, mm -hmm. if they pay. Um, I'm not customer facing, but um, I just do. I just mentioned that to mention like the various products that we built on top of Elasticsearch. So one mm -hmm. use case is that like so customers, enterprise customers, they might be managing logs for many servers, hundreds of thousands of servers. Um, they also hundreds of thousands of like machines, like laptops, things like that. They need all that data stored in one place and easily searchable. That's what Elasticsearch does, which is like just dump all the data in you can do like text search or like fuzzy search freeform search um, but actually since a few years ago forgot exactly what year we also introduced some um, uh i guess machine learning capabilities so then that 
there's like vector search. We can use Elasticsearch also for vector search, which is like pretty big for um, NLP or like generative AI applications. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess just to sum up, Elasticsearch by itself is very versatile. You know, people can use it to, right. they just wanted to build a search bar in their app. Mm-hmm. for example, right? So customers like big banks or um, I think like Instacart or DoorDash, Uber, right. they even Netflix, and they use Elasticsearch in some capability. It might not be in their search bar, like literally, but they could mm-hmm. use it for logging. They could use it for security or things like that. Um, uh, so, okay, where was I going with this? Uh, so I think that's the fun thing. It's very versatile. And then now that there is more of generative AI or NLP capabilities, because like one thing the traditional Elasticsearch is good at is called keyword search, which is like, okay, you're searching something. So rec- uh, like, you know, if you're finding something related to Python, you're finding something related to Java, mm-hmm. it'll show up the relevant results, right? Right. Um, it's not necessarily like in a Google sense, but like if you had a database or a data store with a bunch of mm-hmm. documents. You had a lot of logs. You want to find the logs um, of something that's running a Python process, right? So that's called right. keyword search, which is like, okay, you're searching for something. It'll match the words. It can have like, it can adjust for typos or things like that. We use like mm-hmm. um, some algorithms under the hood um, for distance measuring and kind of like proximity, things like that to pull relevant results up. But with generative AI, we can. Uh, also type semantic search, which is like just like mm-hmm. asking it based on the meaning. So it's like, um, instead of, because the way you Google or like just using Google as an example, but you can use this in any search bar, right? Which is like in Google, like sometimes we will type in a more uh, like keyword search way, which is like, mm-hmm. instead of like, how do I import pandas? Okay, let's just use that very example, right? So, I mean, that can match something too, but how would I realistically do it? I would say like, import pandas, right? Like I would take out the, what's what's those words? Like I would take out like any extra words mm-hmm. or, um, okay. So instead of saying, what is the weather in Toronto today? That's natural language, semantic mm-hmm. search, like meaning. I would just yes. type weather Toronto, right? Yes. That's key. That's more like a keyword search mm-hmm. way of like, you know, finding things or like for the pandas example, I might be like, let's say there's an error, right? I would just be like pandas, paste the error or like something like that. I wouldn't be like, I encountered this error, like what do I do, right? But then in um, one project I was working on recently was um, just like put like basically like natural, uh, just like let's say there's logs, right? In Elasticsearch, Mm -hmm. in Elasticsearch data store. we have this thing called Elser that can create embeddings off of that text. So then it would, uh, you could do some s- semantic search on it. So instead of saying um, just like Python or Java, I could search like what what is related to object-oriented programs mm-hmm. or sorry, programming languages, right? And because object-oriented programming languages on the meaning perspective, it is related Mm -hmm. to Python or Java. So you can find that with semantic search, but you can't find that with keyword search because it doesn't match um, the actual word or it's not like close in terms of like keyword search. 
specifically right. like that's a very generalized or broad example like there's many much uh there's more um applications of that but that's mm -hmm. one recent thing that i found which is like oh that's pretty that's an interesting use of like elastic search and like the um gen ai capabilities and of course like this can all be we're using actually like gpt4 for this so it's not like oh it's all within elastic search but elastic search was just one of the tools that can connect with you know right. the entire um pipeline and life cycle of these things right right amazing amazing i think i would like to add that uh, gen ai on top of that and on top of this uh, amazing technology uh i'm not biased <laughs> i'm not biased <laughs> but elastic search is something that uh um, we talked, for example, in my master, when I was doing my master degree, uh, um, uh, we, we studied uh, Elasticsearch and its functionalities and so on. And generative AI on top of that, plus a vectorized database, which allow what, semantic search and so on. This is so powerful as of which Gen AI we can summarize, we can, we can get, for example, keywords, we can... Like we can derive one type of content into many other type of content and we can all embed them basically and just uh, collinearity, I mean, this is one way, like the collinearity coefficient and just like search them in between them. Mm -hmm. uh, we can just count the like one example that I have for it's like asking of on a piece of content, for example, if I publish something on LinkedIn, asking on a piece of content, what is my audience or what are the people reading this asking themselves? And like mm -hmm. Gen AI gives you 10 questions that you use your own decision to know what makes sense. But like this in terms of opportunities and possibilities, I believe are um, uh, very big and I really look forward to see amazing things. And, and um, I mean, I would love to ask more about recommendation system and so on because um, uh, this is uh, very fun, very interesting, and it have very big impacts in terms of uh, the value it can add to users and, and, to, and to the world. Um, do you want to add anything specifically to that or should I switch to the two last question of the episode? Um, I think just like in terms of the tooling, like, of course, I work at... Elastic, so I have used their tools, but I have also tried other vector databases also. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think for people listening to this, definitely try things out, learn, follow your curiosity and all <laughs> that, but definitely consider using Elasticsearch also. Cause I mean, I myself use it and I did enjoy using it. Like I'm not like making that up, but I do, I, I myself as a machine learning practitioner, I'm more like, I actually tried other, other ones before I even used <laughs> our own um, as a vector store. So, you know, just, just that. Right. And this is a fun project that we're going to do on the, on the show, uh, on the webpage, we're going to build a, a recommendation system to like find specific moments using a vectorized database. This is a, just a quick note. So last two questions. And before we are doing this last two questions, thanks for those who are still listening and still with us. This means that you're very curious and into serious about what you're doing about that NAI and that means a lot. Um, so Susan, I want to thank you a lot also for sharing on the show, taking this time. This is amazing. I know you have a very big agenda. So thanks a lot for being here and sharing your expertise. Um, last two question. Would you have... Um, so first of all, where people can reach out or learn more about you? If you do any conferences, do you have a website? Like where can people see more of you? 
Yep. Um, so I write currently about machine learning interviews on susanshu.substack.com. So that's my Substack. Um, I also have a website with some more general career things, and it also has all my conference appearances at susanshu.com. So s u s a n s h u dot com. Um, and people can also find me on LinkedIn at Susan Shu Chang and feel free to add me there. If you found me from this podcast, let me know. Yeah. Awesome. Please let, let, uh, let some, let's send some love uh, on all the social networks. And last question, would you have a last message for the Let's Talk AI community? This can be a personal message or professional message or anything you want. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Um, you know, to all the listeners, it means you're curious, you're interested in the field, and you know that's really exciting. Awesome, and I wish you to have an amazing day. Thank you, thank you. Congrats, you've made it to the end. I hope you had a great time and that you learned a few things. To learn more about AI, you can subscribe to my newsletter or check the blog. And to support the podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also share it with two friends, colleagues or family members that might be interested. I wish you to have a wonderful day. Bye.